Amen. There are some mornings when I wish I was preaching first and we could sing all the songs afterward because each of those would fit our theme very well today. Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8? I can see where most of the women sit. Big gaps over here. Why is that funny? I'm going to read uh, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Of Romans, would you, uh, would you listen with the appropriate attention to the Word of God? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we can almost feel the passion with which the Apostle Paul must have written these words almost 2,000 years ago. Father, I ask that by your Spirit, the truths, the hope, the, the encouragement they are intended to be would fill our hearts and our minds. That we would understand like never before your grace, your love, and what awaits us because of Christ. Father, lead us into truth, but may it not stay at the realm of mere intellectual truth. May it be heartfelt, emotional, experiential, life-changing truth. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of the second major section of this book of Romans. The first major section was chapters 1 through 4, which establishes that justification is by faith alone. We can only get right with God 
by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was, that was the first four chapters. And then we started looking at this next section, chapters 5 through 8, and it establishes the results of that justification, the hope that we have because we are justified by Christ. And I, I want to recall to your mind the things that we have seen so far in this section, uh, chapters 5 through 8. They're, they're glorious. They're, they're wonderful. Let's not lose the significance of what we've seen. We learned back in chapter 5, verse 1, that we are justified in Christ, and now we have peace with God. He's not angry at us anymore. We don't fight against him. He doesn't fight against us. We have peace with God himself. Verse 2 of chapter 5, we saw that we stand in his grace. We just sang about the stand. We, we stand firmly in God's grace of justification for us. We also saw in verse 2 that we boast in the hope of glory. And as we've seen in these last uh, few weeks especially, that glorious hope that we have, he started off the section saying we boast in that. The, the NAS says we exult in it. That means we brag about it. It's, this is not just a truth, but it's something that we know and we feel and, and we take confidence in and we express our confidence. We are willing to say to people, my hope is sure I will reach glory. At least that's how we ought to be. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he talks about how we persevere through afflictions. We boast there too, he said, knowing that God loves us. And even when persecutions come and suffering comes, we know God loves us and we know that he will not put us to shame at the end. 5, 6 through 8 talks about how Christ died for us when we were ungodly, when we were enemies. And, and he says there, we know that it's hard for a man to give his life for anybody. He might possibly give his life for someone who, who he likes, someone who's a good man, but for the likes of us, who would do that? Christ did that, even when we were helpless and ungodly and enemies. 5, 9 through 10 says, we have been reconciled to God and we will be saved from God's wrath because of Christ. 5, 12 through 21 talked about how in Christ we have been given righteousness and the hope of eternal life. The first 11 verses of chapter 6 speak to how in Christ we are dead to master sin and alive to God. The rest of the chapter speaks about how we were to unrighteousness, now we are slaves to righteousness. Chapter 7, remember, spoke specifically about the Jews under the law. Then we get to chapter 8, 1, the verse that we love so much and rightfully so. There is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 8, 5 through 13 talked about how we walk now in the realm of God's Spirit who indwells us. 14 through 17 talks about how we are adopted as children of God. We are sons and daughters of God and we are co-heirs with Christ of His glory. We sang about that. I've never noticed that line in Be Thou My Vision before, talking about being His sons and heirs uh, with Christ. 18 
through 25 speak about we await redeemed bodies in a redeemed world. 26 and 27 speak about God's Spirit praying to God the Father on our behalf. Verses 28 and 29 speak about how in every circumstance, in every event, God is at work to make us more like Jesus, to make us more righteous, and to make us more faithful through suffering. 28 and 30 speak about how God knew us and loved us and chose us before the foundation of the world to be worshipers of His Son. And in verse 30, we will not fail to reach glory. We cannot fail to reach glory because God has predestined us to that end. That's hope. That is hope. Unbelievers have none of this. Unbelievers are enemies of God. Unbelievers stand condemned before Him. Unbelievers are enslaved to their sin. Unbelievers have no hope of glory in the next age and no purpose for their suffering in this one. But for Christians, for we who God has set His affection on, for we who understand and believe the gospel, we have all of the hope that he's described in these chapters, both future and present. And so after speaking of all of this through these chapters, Paul asks the question in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? How are we going to respond to these things? What do we, what do we say in light of all the glorious blessing all the gifts, all the expectations. In the questions I sent out to you on uh, Friday, I, I suggest that we divide this section into two parts. But I'm going to divide it into three. I think it fits better in these three sections. And Paul is anticipating doubts that we may have, especially when suffering comes on, and he answers those doubts for us. And these three sections, these three doubts are phrased in three different uh, questions, rhetorical questions that he asks. 31b, he asks, if God is for us, who is against us? The second question is, verse 33a, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the third one, verse 35a, who will separate us? From the love of Christ. He then offers powerfully persuasive reasons why these fears should be swallowed up in an ocean of tenacious trust and hope in God through Jesus Christ. So we'll take them in these, in these three orders. So number one, verses 31b through 32, we want to look at this. No one can take us from God. No one can take us from God. That's the response to the question, if God is for us, who is against us? No one can take us from God. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God is for us, who's against us? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I've got a few. There's a lot of people against me. 
There's a lot of people against us as Christians, right? We, we know this. Maybe we have coworkers, neighbors, even family members who think we're bigoted, who think we're hateful. Have anybody in your life that kind of thinks along those lines about you? What does the world call us? They, they call us arrogant, intolerant, one of the big words today, self-righteous, we're offensive. Scientists and educators call us naive, cowardly, obscurantists, who, who just want to get in the way of the progress of science and technology. They, they think that we are people who hold our religious beliefs because, frankly, we're just too afraid to face the truth that this life is all there is. They like to say that we, we use God and religion as a crutch because we won't just face the facts. You're born, you die, that's it. And they are increasingly hostile to our beliefs. The government considers us a threat to their sovereignty. Because they know that we will never follow them blindly as long as we're convinced there's a higher authority that even they are subject to. And they don't like it. The entertainment business, and I would include the mainstream media in the entertainment business, they want to quiet our voice because we impede their freedom to create wicked and evil, uncensored products. Because they've got to deal with those pesky right-wing Christians who, who want to actually say the freedom of speech does not include everything, right? We have plenty of enemies. Sometimes it seems that everyone is against us. So what is Paul getting at when he says, if God is for us, who's against us? Well, here's my list, Paul. That's not really the point, is it? What Paul's really getting at is, if God is your friend, who cares who your enemy is? Who cares? Who is there really to be afraid of if God is on your side? You may have seen the old t-shirts and bumper stickers from a couple decades ago. God and I are a majority, right? You've seen that? It's like, if God is on my side, the whole world can be against me. I still win. And I don't have anything to fear. We need to remember that once God was our enemy. There was a time when he was against us. There was a time when God himself was our biggest threat. Jesus taught this. He, he taught this in some very sobering words in Luke chapter 12. He said this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Don't be afraid of the guy who shows up with a gun. Don't be afraid of military service. When the worst that someone can do is kill you. We don't usually think in those terms, do we? That, that sounds like a, as bad as it gets. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not the one who you should be afraid of. Next verse. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
That was us at one time in our life. God was our biggest threat. But now he's our friend. Now he's our ally. He's our father. If the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the God who holds the whole world in his hands, the world who spoke, the God who spoke the world into existence, the God who controls everything, the God who never shrinks back in fear, is never taken by surprise, the God who cannot be overpowered and overcome. If he is on our side, who cares who's against us? There's an old philosophical conundrum. Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Anybody ever wrestle with that question? And I've heard people say, why is that funny? I've heard people say that's an unanswerable question. Of course it's answerable. Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? What's the answer? No, he can't. Not even if he wanted to, he couldn't. God can't make something bigger than himself. So now you go back to all your philosophy professors. So I figured it out. There is an answer to this question. There is no fear. There should be no fear if God is on our side. That's what Paul's getting at. He's for us. It doesn't matter who's against us. And we know he's for us because he has given up the most precious possession, so to speak, that he has. That's what Paul is saying. If he gave us his son, if he did not withhold that which was most valuable to him, but he sent his son to the cross for the likes of you and me. And as we sang about the, the depths of God's love, and how he forsook his son, he turned his back on his son for us. If he put his son through hell for us, is there any chance he'll withhold any good thing from us? Of course not. He loves us. He proved it. He gave us the biggest one. He'll also give us the lesser things. And I believe the all things here is primarily speaking about glory and eternal life. It probably includes a, a few things along the way, but I think that's the real big one. That's the all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.21, So then let no one uh, boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. We'll just stay there. Stop there. All right, go on. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. He wants to make sure you, Christ doesn't belong to you in this sense, but everything else, it's a gift. It's ours. Why would God withhold all those things if he gave us his son? The answer is he wouldn't. There's no way he will fail to see us all the way to glory. To put it another way, Yes, God has promised an enormous gift. He's promised us to inherit the earth, to be co-heirs forever of all things, but that's nothing compared to Jesus. If he gave us Jesus, he'll give us the rest as well. And no one can undo that. No one can overpower him. No one can remove us from his hands. Here's what, another place that Jesus taught this. John 6. 
all that the Father gives to me will come to me. See, Paul was not the first one to speak about God's sovereignty in our salvation. Paul didn't invent it. Jesus did. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. If God has given you to his son Jesus, and if you are in his hand, you can't get out of it. Nobody can take you out of it. No one is stronger than the hand of God. And he will raise us up on the last day. It is certain and sure. So if God is for us, who's against us? Who cares? Our hope is sure. This will comfort us, beloved, unless current glory means more to us than future glory. Now, if we want pure pleasure and delight now, then this isn't very comforting because we're not getting it all now. But if our heart's desire is above all to be with him in the next age for eternity, then to know it cannot fail to come to pass, the news doesn't get much better than that. That's the first thing. No one can take us from God. Number two, no one can condemn us before God. This is verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So what will keep a person out of glory? What will keep anybody from attaining glory? It's sin, right? Romans 3.23, we all know this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There, the apostle ties together sin and not making it to glory. But God has declared us righteous. He has said, you before my tribunal at my judge bench, you are righteous. Sin cannot keep us out of glory any longer. Nobody has the authority to overrule God and say, yeah, but. There are no yeah, buts when the judge of the universe says, you're not guilty. He is the highest supreme court of all. There's no appeal process. There's nowhere to go. God says you're righteous. You're righteous. Therefore, you will get to glory. We need to know this for two reasons. Even though we would all get this right on a theology exam, probably, we still struggle, don't we? Am I the only one that if I sin, and if I sin a couple times in a row, if I commit the same sin a few times in a row, suddenly those doubts start creeping in a little bit? We start questioning, not, not openly, we, we know theologically it's incorrect, but But a lot of times, as the Spirit brings us to conviction, we somehow distort it into condemnation. At least we feel condemned when we sin. And when we do that, we are tempted to hide from God, or at least try, right? To to withdraw, to pull back, and, and to make ourselves right so that He will accept us again. 
my guess is most of us have done something like this before, where you sin a couple days in a row, three days in a row, whatever, a period of time, and you know you're sinning, and, and then when you sort of come to your senses a little bit, you realize how awful this was, and the right thing to do at that point is to go to the Lord and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, because you know he will. But our temptation is to think, let me get it right for a few days. Let me, let me turn the ship around a better direction and sail on away from those dark waters, and then I'll start talking to God again. And, and we, we don't pray so much, and, and we don't worship as freely until we've had a little bit of success. We do this in personal relationships, too. I can remember times from all, of my, all three of my children, when they've disobeyed and they know they're going to be in trouble, they want to back off. They don't really want to see dad when he comes home. Now, part of that is, you know, they know it's coming and, you know, who wants that? But part of it is just this breach of relationship. And there's a shame factor there. I, I don't want to see my dad because I know it's not going to be pleasant because I've done some bad things. I see this with, with Krista and I. If I offend her, there's a temptation instead of going to make it right and reconciling and making peace and knowing after 21 years where I've had plenty of practice, I know she's gracious. I know she's going to be forgiving. I know this will be gone as soon as I ask forgiveness and everything will be great. But there's that temptation to just say, I'm just going to, I'm going to buck up and I'm going to treat her well for a while and then we'll deal with this. And that's not the way we should do things. That's not how relationships should work. As soon as my children recognize they've disobeyed, they should come and ask my forgiveness and reconcile that breach in the relationship. And as soon as I've offended Krista, I should go to her and ask her forgiveness, knowing she's going to be gracious. And as soon as we sin against God, the safest place to be for a forgiven sinner is in the presence of God. But our temptation is to think, oh, I'm going to get right. I'm going to overcome this. And I'll doggone it, I'm going to be better. And, and then after I've had a few days of, of really doing things well, then I'm going to go, God, you know, that thing I did a week ago, I'm so sorry. And what have we done in that situation? We've decided that our acceptance before God is based on our righteousness. And now that I've had a string of days here that I've been pretty good, I have the right to enter into his throne room. Which is, as the old Brits would say, that's all rot. That's just crazy. That's, that's almost a denial of the gospel. Our acceptance before God has never been based on our righteousness. If it is, we are doomed forever. We don't try to get right with God and then go talk to him. Our acceptance is based on the righteousness of Christ and that alone. That's the whole point of Romans 1 through 4. You're unrighteous. You have no business in the throne room of God whatsoever in your own strength, and your own righteousness, but in Christ you're welcome. So we need to know this. We need to remember this. If God is justified, there's no one to condemn. And we need to know this especially when we are sinning, that because of the cross, we are justified forever and nobody can charge us. Second reason we need to know this is because we have an enemy, an opponent, who takes every opportunity he can get to cause us to doubt. One of the passages that I think illustrates this better than, than any other is in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, which my guess is you haven't read recently. 
Let me just read this. Just listen to this. It's a great, great picture. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. See the setting? There's this guy, Joshua. He's called the high priest. And he's there at the tribunal of God. He's standing before the judge, before God himself. And right there next to him is Satan. And what's he doing? Accusing. He's rehearsing to make sure God doesn't miss it that this Joshua has a lot of sins on his account. His record is pretty, pretty bad. And, and he's right. Satan's not making this stuff up. The list is genuine. Now here's what you would expect. You would expect God as a just judge to hear these accusations, to hear these charges, and look at Joshua, who is guilty of all these things, and say, here's your punishment. Here's your sentence for all the things you've done wrong. And then turn maybe and deal with Satan if he wants to, but that's what you'd expect. That's not what happens. He doesn't talk to Joshua at all. He turns, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Oh, how I love that imagery. It was in the fire. It deserved to burn. But God says to Satan, I myself have reached down and pulled it out. You stand rebuked, Satan. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That's the metaphor. All the charges were, were legit. He was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So Joshua is there standing with a, a dirty robe, and you can't get into heaven with a dirty robe. You can't get into the king's presence with a dirty robe. And Satan is there saying, look how ugly and nasty and gross his robe is. And God says, the Lord rebuke you. I took him out of the fire myself. Take off his dirty robe and put on pure, clean Festal robes, celebratory robes worthy of the king. And you realize the point of the story? We're all Joshua. You're Joshua, and I'm Joshua, and we had really dirty robes. And Satan was right in his accusations, except that we are those that God has plucked from the fire. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross... God then was able to take our ugly, dirty robes off and cast them on Jesus, and he punished our sin, and he took Jesus' perfectly white robe and put it on us, and now we can enter the presence of the king. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? The right answer is nobody. God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? The right answer is nobody. But we have an accuser, and he loves to whisper or to shout into your ear, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Do you really think you're good enough? And as soon as he says that, we've fallen into his trap if we answer with, huh, you're right, I'm a sinner. I'm not good enough. 
oh, wow, what do I do with this? We have to be very careful. The right answer is, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm a justified sinner. God's not looking at my dirty robes. Jesus took that. I have a clean robe. Satan, go away. Now, he's pesky and he doesn't give up. Revelation 12.10 describes him as the accuser of the brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. He's a being who doesn't give up. He doesn't get tired day and night. The imagery is, again, it's kind of like that Zechariah passage where, where Satan is, is constantly, tirelessly, he never sleeps, accusing the brothers. You do wrong, you do wrong, you do wrong, you do wrong, you do wrong. Day and night, day and night, day and night. And that's why Paul reminds us here that Jesus was raised sitting at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us always. Every accusation of Satan is met with Jesus. Satan's the prosecuting attorney, but Jesus is the defending attorney. He says, Satan, yes, he did that. I paid the price on the cross. Satan, yes, she did that. I took that on the cross. Satan, it's far worse than you know, because you don't know everything going on in his heart and in her heart. I know it all, and I died for every single one of it. The Lord rebuke you, leave. For every attack and every accusation that Satan can hurl, we have a defense attorney interceding on our behalf. Who is there to condemn us if Jesus, who paid the price, says he's not guilty? He's righteous. I took it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but one very practical application of this. If you grew up in a home where your parents were especially harsh, certainly abusive, where there was no grace shown, and this is is even, even more acute, for women who grew up in that kind of setting. This is really, really hard to believe this. The, uh, theologically, intellectually, that's, that's not a problem. Yeah, I get the theology exam right. But to truly walk in this, to believe that we are accepted before God without our own works coming into the, the, the equation is really hard if you had harsh, overbearing parents. Because if you grew up in that scenario... You grew up thinking your acceptance is entirely based on performance. And, and a child doesn't, isn't able to process all this, but they, they grow up thinking, it, it must be that I'm doing wrong because if I did right, then my parents would love me and accept me and stop treating me this way. And, and so they try and they try and they try to get it right, to do it right, but they're never, they never do it right or else their parents would treat them better. And then they hear the gospel and they believe it, and yet day in and day out, though they may believe it with their mind, for them to truly understand God accepts them, they don't have to get it right, is a very, very difficult thing. I know we have a lot of our our women away today. If, if, If your wife or daughter or mother is away this week, uh, I would encourage you to have them listen to this sermon and have a conversation with them. And ask them, how are you doing? Do you understand that if you are in Christ, there is no one to condemn you? Your acceptance is based on Jesus and Jesus alone. 
They need to hear that. They need to know that. They need to believe it daily. They need a reminder. They need encouragement from, from, from others to, to understand that, not just in their head, but in their heart. And I guess, truth be told, we all need that because there are times it's easy for us to forget. Number three, no one can disconnect us from God's love. No one. This is verses 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered to be sheep, uh, as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That includes everything. You get that, right? It's like he's talking about all these different dimensions, and finally he just says, look, I'm just talking about everything that is. Of all that that there is, none of it will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus loves you, this you know, because the Bible tells you so, right? Who or what will ever make him stop loving you? The answer, of course, is nothing. God will not stop loving us. But when life doesn't go our way, when we suffer, we are tempted to question this. And again, I know most of us are, are too theologically astute to actually say that we think God stopped loving us, but inside, sometimes the doubts creep in. When pain and grief and sadness arise, it's easy to start wondering about his benevolence, or at least we drift toward this conclusion that, that maybe we did something, or for some reason he has decided not to be gracious to us, and we doubt that was what was going on in Psalm 44 that Paul quotes from here about this uh, all day long being slaughtered and stuff. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you, but let me just give you the context briefly here. This is a, a psalm, the, the sons of Korah, and, and they're, they're, first of all, they testify to God's power and his saving power and, and all that he did for the fathers of Israel and rescuing them from Egypt and all that. And, and he says, you are my king, O God, and, and he's ascribing trust in God. He says, I don't trust in my bow or my sword, but I trust in you. And, and, and we've boasted in you and, and all this statements of praise and, and, uh, and trust in God. Then he says, but you've rejected us and you've brought us to dishonor. And you're not going out with our armies. And you cause us to turn back from our adversary. And those who hate us take spoil from us. You've given us as sheep to be eaten. And you've scattered us among the... Now it's back on again? Yes? No? Maybe? No? Okay, good. Uh, we're laughing stocks among the people, and on and on. All this has come up upon us, but we've not forgotten you. Uh, he says, we actually, this time we got it right. We, we haven't broken the covenant. We haven't done all these horrible things. Uh, our heart is not turned back. Our steps haven't deviated. 
yet you've crushed us. And you've covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, you would find this out. We haven't. And for your sake, we're killed all day long. We're considered to be sheep, to be slaughtered. And, and, he's, and they're saying, we don't understand, God. We're being faithful, and you're still destroying us. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Forget our affliction, our oppression, for our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Do you ever feel like that? And are you tempted at that point to say, God, have you forgotten to love? Have you, have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned me? And it closes by saying, rise up and be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And so Paul is asking the question, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? And then he quotes this. Are we to respond the same way and say, God, have you forgotten us? God, have we done something wrong? What is the answer here? And he comes back with the statement, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that unlike those in Psalm 44 who have to say, God, rise up and show that you're loving kind toward us, God says, because, or Paul says, because of Christ, there is no room for doubt. He has proven on the cross his love for us. So whatever else may be going on in our suffering and our pain and our fears, it's not because God has forgotten to love us. He has a different purpose, a different plan, but his love was proven on the cross. And who's going to separate us from that? No created thing. Nothing present, nothing to come, no spiritual power, no earthly power, nothing that's been created has the ability to separate us from God's love. And, and you know what I love about that? That includes us. Raise your hand if you're a created thing. A created thing. Anybody not a created thing? Okay, good. You are a created thing. You are on the list of things that cannot separate God's love from you. Even we can't do it. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, any of that separate us? Absolutely not. So what if the world collapses down on our heads? So what if we are are assaulted and persecuted for the sake of Christ? So what if the world runs out of food and water? So what if our, her, our houses burn down in next year's fire or are swept away by flood or blown away by hurricane? So what if we are attacked by a thief or shot in a mall massacre? Will it hurt? Yeah. Will it cause all kinds of physical, emotional, and relational turmoil? Probably. Will it kill us? Maybe. But God loves us. 
There is no sorrow, no danger, no torture, no agony, no disease, no frustration, no uncertainty, no shame, no temptation to sin, no death of a loved one, not even our own death that can change that. God loves us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Never, no way. And what I'm going to say could sound trite and trivial. I don't mean it that way in the least. But let's just step back and take a, a, an eternal perspective here for a moment. What is the worst possible imaginable experience for a Christian? The worst possible imaginable experience for a Christian is that we live 70 or 80 years in absolute misery. Now, that doesn't happen very often because in between periods of trial and suffering, God gives us a lot of wonderful experiences and joys and happiness. But let's just take worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario, everything that could possibly go wrong happens to you. You're Job for like 80 years. That would not be easy. That would not be in the least bit pleasant. But it will end. You don't live forever. Death will stop it. What is that compared to eternity in glory? An eternity where day after day and week after week and year after year and decade after decade and century after century and millennium after millennium is nothing but perfect joy and perfect pleasure and perfect delight and perfect satisfaction. Nothing can separate us from God's love. There's no disease, no trial, no oppression. Nothing is God saying, I don't love you anymore. As we've seen, these are all things where God says, I love you enough to make you worthy of eternity. God loves us and he will not stop ever. And it's all because of Jesus. Verse 39 Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now we come full circle. Everything starts about Jesus. Everything ends about Jesus. Life is all about Jesus. Your love, God's love for you is secure because of Jesus. Your justification is sure because of Jesus. No one will be able to take you out of his hand because of Jesus. He purchased your eternal redemption. What then shall we say to these things? I think we have one response. Thank you, Jesus. Gratitude and trust. We need to say with our mouths and believe with our hearts and live our lives as people who believe it's true. No matter what comes here and now, my eternal glory is certain because of Jesus. It is done. It is completely done. It cannot not happen. Christ accomplished it on the cross. It is certain. So I'm going to live like that. I'm going to sing it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to live a life of gratitude saying, thank you, Jesus. I was once an enemy, but now I am God's friend forever. It's the only response, right, church? 
As our closing prayer, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to sing two songs. And as Dave challenged us at the beginning, don't send the Hallmark card. Don't even underline some key phrases. Sing with all your heart that you believe that it is done and that you have 10 million reasons to praise the Lord. Let's stand and sing.